the Heart of England uh, Toastmasters podcast. My name is Pierre and I'm your host. Come join us uh, live at the Sicilians on the first and third Tuesday of the month. For all details, please go to our website, heartspeakers.org.uk. Today, I have a very special guest to talk about, unfortunately, some very temporal events, but uh, we'll get into that. So, Right now, please say hello to the very talented designer, Amina Horosic. Hello, Amina. Hi, Pierre. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very um, flattered and honored you've uh, decided to include me on your little podcast. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, uh, you know, as it, it's um, there, we have a lot to talk about. That's just <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully I said your last name correctly this time. Perfect. It's All perfect. Right. Excellent. All right. So as I always like to start with our guests. So Amina, where were you born? Um, sure. So I was born uh, in Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was part of Yugoslavia at the time of my birth. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm from the Balkan. Don Balkans. Yeah, if my last name didn't give it out already. <laughs> <laughs> so how was your childhood growing up? You know, I had a pretty um, kind of uh, unremarkable childhood up until like 1992 when, when the war started. But prior to that, yeah, I felt like I was like a regular kid, um, you know, just playing and watching Alf and uh, Punky Brewster and playing with Bar Barbies and all that good stuff. Um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't really up until 92 when when the siege of Sarajevo happened that spring that things kind of uh, went a little bit south yeah. uh, and, and changed things and, and more or less turned my life into like the before and after. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, well... You know, we'll get to that. But uh, mm -hmm. when you were a little girl, did you have any um, hints about the careers you're going to choose? You know, not really. I mean, I always loved to draw. Um, and I think at that age, I just assumed that's what you do when you're, you know, eight, nine years old. Um, I did not think um, or uh, imagine that there's uh, a career opportunity or anything like that. I think my parents, as they're both economists, they definitely were steering more academically um and steering more towards uh like traditional things that your parents want you to do and pursue like you know being a lawyer or a doctor <laughs> um and i was a i was a good student so i think at that point the assumption was that that would be my trajectory mm -hmm. doctor lawyer or economist um, well knowing you I have a hard time picturing that but you never know <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, one of the reasons why I did want to talk to you, unfortunately, in a way is, you know, 92, then the war breaks out in uh, Yugoslavia. Did you have, um, when you were a little girl, did you have any hints about what was going on? Do you have a sense of the gravity of the situation? You know, it's, it's funny how those things um, evolve. And I, and I can speak from my kind of nine-year-old perspective. I remember this, maybe it was the summer before, but I, or I don't even know the time frame. I do know it was recent 
uh, or just before things started unraveling in former Yugoslavia, that we were watching on TV the the things, the events unraveling in Kuwait and United States sending troops over and, and stabilizing that rather quickly from what I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when things started happening first in Croatia and then on the outskirts, um, or I should say more like Eastern and Western parts of Bosnia, um, what I remember the conversations within like the adults in my family was that like, Oh, like there's no way, like those are just small kind of skirmishes in the outskirts and the villages you know, we are in Europe, we're Europeans, there's, you know, there's no way after World War II, like this, you know, ridiculous. So no, nobody really anticipated anything um, happening, let alone uh, what did happen, which was almost four years of war and, and Sarajevo being under siege for almost the entire duration of it. Um, so yeah, so from from my perspective as a kid at the time, um, I, I definitely did not uh, expect it. I remember at one point we were supposed to go to school and our, our classes were canceled. I was very excited about that, um, <laughs> but I didn't know that it was canceled because there was like barricades and, and, and things were about to go down. Um, right. And then as it did start happening, um, like when the bombs started falling and all the snipers and no water and no electricity, then it started becoming very scary um and uh, nonsensical i mean uh, to this day none of it really makes sense i don't think war will ever make sense um no as i said unfortunately i mean that's one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you because sadly another war broke out in europe and Mm. uh, it's always i think it's very it's more personal and more interesting to speak to someone obviously who's lived through it mm-hmm. rather than you know watching it on tv callously if, if i if i should mm-hmm. say so because mm-hmm. i mean my my first recollection from that watching it on tv was the snipers i mean you're like oh my god this is mm-hmm. just absolutely horrible so when all right so the where the war breaks out so what happens i mean to you i mean do you have a sense that you need to pack up and leave or you just going, you know, staying at home and sheltering? Well, what, what happened? Um, I mean, uh, all of those decisions were made by my parents and um, there was an opportunity for us to leave pretty early on during the siege. And I think we left with one of the last convoys out of the city. Um, and I think it was through word of mouth, at least this is the history that I remember, that somebody had told my parents that that somebody had found like a, a broken bus somewhere that still runs and they've taped the windows with some plastic, um, what do you call it, bags. And that, you know, if we uh, give them enough money for the fuel, uh, some of us could board it and and get, get, get out of the city um, more or less that day. So, um, yeah, I was woken up one morning. My dad gave me my shoes and said, you need to put these on and you need to run. Um and of course, I was protesting. I, I didn't want to go, but clearly I did not have a choice. And yeah, uh, more or less uh, in like, I think 48 hours, we were on the coast of Croatia in a town called Split in, in Dalmatia. Mm-hmm. Um, um, just kind of hoping that it was going to last for maybe two to three weeks and then we could go back. I know my mom packed for two weeks of us being away. Mm-hmm. 
um, just to kind of keep us away from bombs falling and and the snipers, um, as it was becoming very clear that it wasn't like a military war, it was an attack on civilians. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's all you packed with just that, you know, two mm-hmm. weeks of the course of closing, that's it. Yeah. yeah. My God. So how was, so when you, you get to split, so how, how did you feel? Um, very, very sad, very discombobulated. Um, we also didn't really know anyone there. We locked out as one of our neighbors, um, actually three of our neighbors' families had left at the same time. And one of them had uh, like started a conversation with someone uh, that had shown up to the center where all of us were arriving. And he said uh, he had like an extra apartment, uh, like maybe five kilometers outside of Split that he's his family is not using. And that if we wanted to crash there for a little bit, uh, we, we were all welcome, more than welcome. So there was like 12 of us plus a family that was there already. So I think total 17 of us in this three bedroom flat. And again, uh-huh. people were thinking this was going to be like a couple of weeks or a month at the most or two months. Um, but uh, we ended up staying there for like a year and a half. Wow. So how how did you uh, live your time in Split? I mean, obviously, did they speak up? They speak Croatian there. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, at the time, uh, I mean, in former Yugoslavia, we called it Serbo-Croatian. So, um, uh, and then with the splits, everyone kind of got their own languages. They're more or less. Um, we can all understand each other. You can you can say their dialects, but I'm not a linguist to to fully be able to explain what the differences are. But we can understand each other. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, no, my mom, my mom somehow like convinced the principal to to let us go to school uh, because we were um, now from a different country and under a refugee status. I think initially they weren't going to let us. But I think in combination of my mom's uh, uh, charm and her skills and uh, likely this principal being a, a decent human being, um, they let me go to school. So yeah, I, I more or less went to fourth and part of fifth grade um, there. And I was very, very lucky that um, uh, both our neighbors around there were very, very kind human beings and very generous. Um, and that my teacher um, somehow ended up being uh, a former refugee herself during World War II. So she wow. really empathized with me and then also like taught my classmates about about what it means to um leave your home at that age and how that might feel and um yeah i get emotional just thinking about it even now like oh, yeah, yeah they, i can hear it uh, <laughs> they like uh, bought me some books and um gathered some clothes that i could fit in um because like i said we only packed for like two weeks um, yes. Yeah, so, so when you see what's going on right now in uh, Ukraine, do you, does it like do you, are you getting triggered, or how does it how do you how do you experience that? Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Like yeah. last last year when it was all going uh, on, that first couple of weeks, it it was it was really rough. Like I was basically like present here, um, like walking through streets of Stockholm, but then I would have this feeling like any moment now like something is about to ex- explode around me um mm. i definitely felt like this sense of dread and then 
you know, of course, uh, watching images and, you know, you, you've seen um, uh, videos of women and children leaving, women and children leaving in buses and they look Slavic like like I do. And it just was like a deja, total deja vu and just mm-hmm. un- unbelievable. Um, and it, it really shed a light on like how uh, how how traumatic that experience is that even like 30 years later, it just, it's still there and can like take over so rapidly and, um, and still feel like it's, it was just a second ago. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the PTSD and the, the weight of a war is, is real and it, it stays for a lifetime, unfortunately. I am. I, uh, yeah, I'm, I feel so bad. I mean, my God, yeah, it's Jesus living, living it all over again. Basically, uh, that's gotta, that's gonna be terrible. Man, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Right. So you, so you were in Croatia for a year and a half. So then, what happened? Then um, there was there was opportunities for us to go to other places in EU, but from what we, I mean, you have to imagine back then there was no internet, there was no social media, there was no cell phones. So it was a lot of word of mouth things and and the stories that were coming back from Germany and Denmark and France and Sweden is that like, yeah, you could get there, but then you're in these kind of collective communal housings um, with hundreds of people sharing a bathroom, et cetera. And, uh, and for God knows how long until you're processed and if, if and when you're able to get like a work license or any sort of a normal life. And so my mom was very hesitant to expose us to more trauma. Um, and then around the same time, United States finally opened up uh, their asylum for folks from our region. And I believe the requirements were that you had to have been in a concentration camp or raped or from a part of Bosnia that had fallen. And we had none of those requirements. Um, And so I'm not sure how my mom, again, convinced anyone to give us an asylum, maybe because Sarajevo was in this perpetual siege um, and there was no end in sight at the time. Um, uh, and maybe because she had two um, uh, underage kids with her, um, uh, maybe that was the way that that uh, we got sponsorship by an archdiocese in Detroit. Okay. So in um, 1994, in May of 1994, um, we we flew over. Yeah. Okay. So it was just uh, your mom, your your, and your brother, mm-hmm. and yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of our rest of our family had stayed back in in Sarajevo. Okay. All right, so I'm gonna share my little experience driving into Detroit. Mm-hmm. So my first, you know, first day of school, and uh, you know, study car design, whatever. So I drive into Detroit, and without GPS at the time, I get mm-hmm. lost. And I look around, and I mean, I'm thinking the whole city looks completely bombed out. And I'm going to get mugged because I have my TV, the microwave, and everything in my car. <laughs> How did Detroit look to you when you got there? Because in mid-90s, you know, Detroit was not as, uh, let's just say, hospitable as it is today. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, definitely. Especially when you've grown up watching uh, Hollywood movies and like <laughs> scenes from L.A. and, uh, you know, outside of Chicago with the big houses and the white picket fence. 
Um, no, it definitely looked like a war zone. I, I remember we were we were joking around saying like, oh, were they just being considerate? So our tr- transition wasn't so dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, hospitality right there. Yeah, exactly. Like, welcome yeah. to America. Here's like the worst possible <laughs> place for someone coming from a war zone um but no i mean yeah detroit has a bad rep but but i I had a good time in detroit it's actually very like warm warm people there and very gritty people and very street smart and i learned a lot from uh from detroit on how to be resilient and uh still still remain your uh, retain your humanity um uh and and not become bitter so (laughs) Uh, how did the past uh, that facade? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, how did uh, how are you welcomed in the U.S. at school and in the neighborhood? How was it for you? Um, yeah, it was it was really um, uh, really well actually. Like we ended up in a in a, a suburb outside of Detroit, and uh, again, like uh, I was very lucky. The the schools uh, um, were uh, really well equipped. Uh, in part of Detroit, by the way? Which part? Um, so it, it was uh, Macomb County. Macomb so County. Had, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, I had this. There were some Bosnians that had lived in the area before, like that had come twenty years prior for different reasons, for just oh. looking for for job opportunities, and so this one woman had taken me in to um, basically enroll me in the school, and uh, she had convinced them to put me one grade up. She was like, Oh, our kids are smart. You can put her in seventh grade. And if you uh-huh. know, she fails, you can, you can pull her back. Um, and so they did, they gave me a chance and, and, uh, I did well. And so I skipped a grade, um, uh, moving nice. to the United States. I ended up finishing high school when I was 17, more or less. Very nice. Um, so yeah. And, and yeah, we had like, uh, English as a second language, uh, class, although most of us have had English by this point and were pretty fluent, but that was really helpful. And then, yeah, we were, we were quite welcomed. I'd say I can't really, uh, I don't have any like, uh, uh, stories of being bullied or anything like that. People were very curious about what was happening and, and why, and, um, very kind and, 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 uh, uh, understanding of like our situation. Oh, that's, that's, um, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. All right. So at this point, you know, as you're getting up into your teens, do you still have any inkling about what you weren't going to do later as a profession? I mean, I was still convinced I was going to be, you know, super nerd and uh, pursue these uh, typical p- paths to, to success in a more stable ways. But then in high school, I want to say maybe my sophomore year, there this art uh, teacher came in from New York. I think she was from Michigan and she came back um, and she was very uh, uh, nonconformist for, for that area and for that region. She was very much her own person. Um, and I, like I said before, I've always been drawing, I was drawing then, but it was, to me, that was just more of a hobby. I didn't really think I had a a talent or a skill or, or anything out of the norm there. Um, and, uh, she was exposing us to kind of different styles of art and expression. And, um, uh, we were doing more impressionist work one week and she saw some, what I thought at the time were scribbles that I was doing. And she stopped like mid stride and said, you know what, do, do more of those. And I was like, 
really? You want me to do more scribbles? <laughs> like, okay, I can do more scribbles. But then she exposed me to like Rauschenberg and a bunch of other um, artists of that era. And um, I started doing, I didn't know this at the time, but I more or less started doing art therapy through that because I, when I, when I was in Croatia, you know, there was no, we didn't have a TV at the time. Um, the only news we could get from Bosnia was through radio and then, of course, through a newspaper. So I would cut out all of the articles that had anything to do with Sarajevo and I would keep them in the, like this little notebook just to feel like I'm connected to it. And so mm -hmm. when she exposed me to Rauschenberg's work, I remembered those bits and I brought them in and, and I did a whole bunch of kind of uh, transfers and collages with uh, with those photographs from from the newspapers um, mm -hmm. and then ended up winning a whole bunch of awards. Nice. Um, and it felt like way too easy <laughs> in a way. <laughs> um, but she really encouraged me and opened my eyes to like the power of art and what, what it can do. Um, and yeah, and then I, my brother was, was is also an artist and a designer. He's older than me. And he convinced my parents that like, like there's something there and that mm -hmm. I should pursue it further. Um, and he was at CCS already at the time. So he told me to swing by the student show and, and check out and especially check out this industrial design department and these transportation design department that, you know, I might like it because they're able to do sculpture and draw and um, like business related um, things, like all all the things more or less in, in one package and that it might be interesting for me. Um, mm -hmm. And those, I think those were like the first seeds of like, like maybe this is something that I really enjoy and, and want to keep exploring further. Okay. Do you still find uh, your art therapeutic in a way? Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 Very nice. Did you, uh, I know we talked about it uh, off, of Mike, uh, do you did were you um, having some therapy at the time or no, not at all? No, I wish I wish someone was like, oh, here's this child from a war zone. Maybe she would benefit um, of uh, of speaking to someone about this. Yeah, you would think, um, right? <laughs> I think we've learned since then. Yes. No, I, I discovered therapy very late. Um, I'd say I was in grad school. So I was probably, yeah, in my late 20s, about to turn 30. And it was um, thanks to encouragement from a friend who was going through some rough, tough, rough times um, during her like teenage years. And she was telling me how it really had helped her reframe things and see things differently. And she kind of removed the stigma, you know, that at the time, and it still to this day exists about like, you know, going to a therapist, like you sure. must be crazy or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's when I started going and, and um, a, a lot of things started clicking in place and it was super helpful during times like that first refugee wave. And of course, during, as you mentioned um, earlier about Ukraine, like those mm -hmm. times where, you get super triggered. Um, it was really nice to have had the tools to be able to keep myself in the present moment um, and not like spiral or regress in a way. No, I mean, I, I can't think of something more traumatic than being, you know, inf mm -hmm. uh, impacted by the war. So no, of course it's, um, 
Uh, no, I'm glad hey, you found art and you found some therapy as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're in Detroit studying industrial design. And so then you graduate. Oh, before you graduate, <laughs> you run into me who's judging your <laughs> Michelin piece. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's how we met. As I said, I was probably a little harsh on you, but <laughs> I don't remember. I yeah. don't remember. you. Being, I mean, I it was CCS. I feel like in comparison to everyone at CCS who was like so ready to tear you apart in any critique, I feel like you were very kind and generous. So, yeah. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> I don't remember it that way, but all right. <laughs> no, I still, as I said, I still remember your uh, gym, uh, your wheel was shaped as a gymnast. That was pretty cool. Yeah, all right. So you graduate. Uh, all right. So you graduate as uh, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Transportation Design, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So then what happens? Um, yeah, that fall I started working for Chrysler, um, and I was there for about like four years of my career. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I worked on all sorts of stuff. I started working with Ralph Gilles, uh, pretty early on. We were doing some production stuff. Uh, and then I did a stint, uh, in advanced studio in Pacifica in California for about six months. It was part of our rotation. Mm -hmm. And then when I returned, uh, I, I went back up to Advanced in Detroit. Uh, and for those who aren't aware, Advanced just means like thinking of future concepts. So, you know, five to 20 years out. Um, and then, unfortunately, at that time, Chrysler was in a very dire straits. It was being, um, Daimler was leaving. And I forget even the name of, of the company that acquired it. I just remembered it was some name for like some three-headed monster. <laughs> Cerberus Capital yes. Management. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, which, which was, which is like, I feel like a whole chapter in its of, of itself. Yes. Quite um, a saga on this one. Hang on a yeah. second. Um, you know, as we are, as a little podcast about communication, I'm always mm-hmm. curious because Ralph is one of the biggest names in car design, obviously. Mm-hmm. How did he communicate with you guys, especially if you're, you know, a young, you know, a young designer who just started? How how did he communicate with you? How did you feel he communicate with his team? What was his oh, style? Ralph is just the best. I mean, even even to this day, like he's like the, the I mean, I consider him a, a friend now. But if if I think think of it as from a professional standpoint, he's like still one of the best people, been the best human beings I've ever worked for and with um he's really his greatest skill in addition to his talents and creativity is really being able to like sense people and sense what their strengths are mm-hmm. and then coach and amplify that and i didn't really realize that until i had left and had some experience on my own because yeah. even at the time he was trying to guide me into more of these like big picture strategic positions that at the time I was like, why are you putting me there? Like, I just, you know, I just want to draw like hot stuff, but he noticed that I had some skills that would benefit from being nurtured that, that at the time, you know, I was only 21, 22 at the time, but I really didn't fully connect myself. So um, you know, yeah, if, if I had a chance to yeah work with Ralph all over again, I would do it in a heartbeat. He's just one of the best, um, best leaders creative leaders out there and yeah yeah i'm not surprised his success is uh, not just well deserved but like i feel like he could even get more than than what he's do what he has yeah 
Yeah, no, I, uh, I always heard, I've never met him personally, but I've always heard great things about him. And I think the work speaks for itself. So mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah, know. Well, very, uh, I'm glad. All right. So let's go back to our dear uh, three headed monsters. So <laughs> <laughs> they basically force you out of Chrysler. Is that correct? Um, I mean, kind of, sort of like we, we started like doing a skunk works, uh, group, or I should say Ralph and the teams started a skunk works group. And I was part of that. And, and our hope and dream was that we were going to create like a next C segment vehicle that was going to help Chrysler reemerge, uh, as, as a relevant player in the market again, except like it just kept getting delayed and canceled and way too many cooks in the kitchen from my perspective at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting really frustrated. And, and again, I should say I was very young and spoiled. I had no other reference in like what a career could or should look like at the time. I only knew that, you know, like I was at Chrysler and I wanted to accomplish certain things and I wasn't able to. Right. Um, so they were offering like a, like a buyout for anyone who wanted to take it. Um, and I thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I feel like I need to diversify my skills a little bit in case this car and in- car industry just ends up disappearing. I don't know. There might be like a rapid change to something else or, or legislation towards electric or whatnot. Um, and I didn't want to find myself in a position where I had limited skills, um, both observing my managers at the time who were getting a little bit nervous. You know, they had families, they had mortgages, you, you can be a car designer only in like three places in the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are you going to do? And then also seeing my parents, you know, transitioning from like really like high level uh, careers in Bosnia to more or less just kind of uh, like uh, basic gigs in the United States because of the language barrier. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of buffer and pr- protect myself to be able to withstand uh, the the strange inconsistencies of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up taking the buyout um, to go to California, to San Francisco specifically, to get a, a, an MBA in design strategy. Mm-hmm. And that was a very tactical decision because I felt like I had all of the kind of uh, practical skills when it comes to design. I could draw, I could make stuff in 3D, um, I could render, etc. But after four years of working at Chrysler, I realized that I really lacked this connection with business, this understanding of how to communicate about design to folks that are more or less looking at the bottom line. How can we kind of um, uh, explain the value of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You have to remember at this time, this was 2008, yeah. human-centered design and design thinking were very new, very fresh. iPhone had just come out. Like there was no other uh, a good reference from a business standpoint where yeah. design and, and integrating design within business had made such a big uh, revenue impact. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's, that's why I headed West and that's why an MBA over, over an MFA. Um, yeah. I just really felt like I wanted to round off my, my skill set and, and make myself a bit more, uh, broader in yeah, yeah. what I could do and where I could do it. Actually, you just touched on a very interesting question. So also now you're going through your MBA unless you graduate. So, there's a question. 
how do you explain design to the bean counters? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that's wow. That's a that's a great question um, and a very broad question. Sure, but, there, but there's there's many ways. I mean, I think I think uh, uh, connecting the emotional to rational, and yeah. I think we have a lot of examples now. We can always pull from. Um, as as kind of uh, case studies of, of both successes and failures, I think uh, I also worked for uh, Frog and, and Fuse Project in San Francisco, and I think both of those organizations, especially Eve Behar, they, they've kind of set up a really nice uh, foundation um, on on connecting business and design. So these days, I think it's at least I'd like to believe that it's less. Uh, challenging in convincing, yeah. uh, as you call them, bean counters to look at the value of design. I think the challenge today is more of the process and how do we integrate it and how do we integrate it in a holistic way and how do we actually innovate within the business model aspect because mm -hmm. it's becoming very clear that um, the the kind of portfolio development based strictly on uh, what do you call it? Revenue growth is just not sustainable from so many verticals um, mm -hmm. from uh, the earth being able to take, take it um, onwards. So I think now it, it's becoming this, this approach that designers have and where the business is at the moment, I think the exciting Uh, like juicy challenges are within the scope of trying to answer for innovation within how do we maintain a business and how do we grow a business without relying on making more things, mm. if that makes sense. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So you're putting into like sustainability into the equation or something? Oh, else? definitely. I think we yeah. have, I don't think we have a choice anymore. No, I believe you're right. Yeah. But again, I think back when you were like in, back with your NBA, I don't think people had those, uh, made those connections. Yes. I think in the last, no, no, no. I would say five years, it's probably mm -hmm. more made more business sense to put, you know, like a cradle to grave in a product and think about, It's environmental impact, but definitely. I mean, the, the program that I did at California College of the Arts, the the DMBA in design strategy, I was the second cohort, and they were pioneering at that time. And this was two thousand nine to two thousand eleven. They were pioneering the cradle to crater cradle, and that's what attracted me to the program. That it was this kind of more holistic approach to uh, uh, product development, business development, mm -hmm. strategy. That it wasn't just like Oh, let's put this thing on the market and then make more money and make, you know, the quarterly results that makes our board happy. Like, yeah, like everyone knows that formula already, but like, is that appropriate in 2023? Mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the thing that we need to start looking into. Yeah, I agree. So all right, after graduation, so what happened to you? Who did you work for? Um, yeah, as I kind of briefly mentioned uh, before, I started uh, working for Frog, which is a right. design consultancy, a global mm -hmm. design consultancy. Um, I was there for about two years, and then I joined a, a, a startup called Ether Things uh, for about two years. 
um, before, uh, unfortunately, pulled, it got its plug pulled. Um, but we had a good time. And um, and then I was at Fuse Project um, after that, uh, leading industrial design there and nice. at Neo very briefly uh, before I moved to, to Europe. So one made, actually, no, let's stop that. Hold on one second. Uh, we mentioned all these, uh, you know, how you sustain a, prod, a, a product, how you presented a bean counter. Is there a project in that time in California that st stands out to you? Yeah, for sure. Like the the bit that we did, the speaker that we did for Ether Things, I feel like kind of incorporated a lot of a lot of those uh, touch points. And um, I think if we were given a little bit more time, uh, we could have we could have actually developed some very interesting approaches from both design standpoint and business standpoint. Uh, but I still think that experience as as a, as a highlight because it incorporated all of these things that I'm super passionate about design and business and and uh, and growing a portfolio holistically and growing a team and really working collaboratively there was no silos we more or less sat one next to another um, and um, really focused on on almost no compromise when it came to design standpoint but also from engineering standpoint. I uh, was really, really lucky to have some super creative engineers on board who were adventurous and um, open enough to try new things. Um, so I, I learned a lot during that time and, and really made close friends with uh, with folks um, that, that were working alongside. So, yeah, I'd say that was that was the tops and it showed. I mean, we ended up winning a whole bunch of awards afterwards, even if the company didn't exist anymore. And it's still when I look at it now, the the cone, the speaker, um, mm -hmm. it really stood the test of time, and it um, it's still one of the most. Um, it, maybe I'm biased, but I I feel like <laughs> it's still one of the most um, interesting uh, speakers out there. All right, very good. So you did mention you are broadcasting from Stockholm. So what made you uh, change your mind and go back to the uh, old country? Because uh, to me at the time, because you know you. you you see people and what they're doing and socially on social media once in a while, you know, you look pretty happy in California and all of a sudden you're in Stockholm. So how did that happen? <laughs> you know, too much of a good thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like a challenge and I, I feel like I was kind of, um, I felt like I did all the things that I wanted to do in San Francisco and, and I really wanted to get, get into um, doing things that are more um, small scale and more craft based and, mm -hmm. and less kind of focus on mass markets and mass uh, mass products and tech products as well. Um, uh, and so I ended up uh, taking a master's program at Ecal in Switzerland uh, mm -hmm. that was more focused on luxury design and craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like the, it's it's interesting the the transition in your brain even to to shift from thinking about defending a design uh, and and uh, in bits and pieces and saving pennies here and there to to make it uh, marketable um, and then you you go to like a Swiss watchmaker. And they're like, oh, yeah, we made only two of these, took us a year and a half, and it's like <laughs> 2.5 million euros. 
Nice. Like, no problem. Like, oh, you want to do that? Of course, we can do that. No problem. Oh, you want to CNC this giant brass bit? Yeah, we can do that. Wow. So, and it, while it seems like it's so liberating and like, wow, yeah, awesome, I can do whatever. That if you've, you know, like me, spent the past ten or fifteen years um, thinking about uh, how to position a, a, a product in a in a mass market space, and then you enter that world, it's it's a total mind twist in a way, <laughs> um, and and a whole other set of skills. I feel like that you need to. Uh, resurrect um, and like uh, approach it from a totally different uh, headspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a preference? Or do you just like the challenge itself? I mean, I oscillate. I, I do love a good, uh, as I call it, chess game. I do love the strategic, uh, uh, juicy problems of larger organizations. I think there's something very interesting there that we could be doing uh, because it does trickle trickle out and trickle down. Um, um, but I, I am very much a hands-on person, and I there's something really nice about working with an artisan and the one-on-one experience you get there and and the tactility of the materials that you would never be able to use in a mass produced um, product. Um, So they both have their uh, advantages and and disadvantages. Um, But I think I'm, I'm leaning more these days towards the smaller batch um, Mm -hmm. stuff and and the more uh, unique expressions, something that, that, that will last and maybe be passed on from generation to generation, something with a, a story and a bit more gravitas. Not to say that uh, a mass-produced product can't have the same. Of course yep. it can. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Wow. So, all right. So one master is in the U.S., one master is in Switzerland. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was a workaholic in that way, but I see that uh, you're a workaholic as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like that's um, um, that that was one of my uh, coping mechanisms uh, mm-hmm. of how to deal with uh, the war experience and the ongoing PTSD. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of my maladaptive behaviors. Um, you know, on surface, it looks great. It looks like I'm working 24 seven and just constantly productive, mm-hmm. but it's really, it's really not healthy or sustainable in, in the long term. you know, uh, uh, and behind the scenes, I would really get into my head and convince myself that I'm not capable, that I don't deserve any of this success that I need to make it harder on myself than it should be that, you know, there's obstacles in my way that I cannot overcome. And it, I would just uh, more or less uh, paralyze myself. And and mm-hmm. one way out of that was through like um, uh, do a lot of work to right. quiet that kind of sabotaging voice in my head and, and to recognize how far I've come and what I have been able to do um, considering where and how I started um, my yeah. practice. Um, Were you able to figure this out by yourself or did therapy help in that way as well? Oh, definitely. Uh, Therapy accelerated this process for sure. I mean, um, as conceited as it might sound, the the truth and the facts is, is that I I believe now that I am capable of realizing my dreams and, and acknowledging that out loud has been incredibly empowering and freeing for me. Um, and okay. it's a daily practice, literally, um, sometimes, um, because it, it is very 
familiar and safe space for me to be somewhere where I feel like I don't belong or deserve. Mm. I don't know. You put it into work and there you are, you know, in my mm. opinion. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in Stockholm. So, all right. So what brought you to Stockholm? Um, I had a, an opportunity, um, uh, uh, for work obviously. And then I was also, um, in a relationship, uh, at the time. So mm -hmm. kind of like a mix of, of personal and professional reasons that uh, brought me over to Stockholm. Nice. How are you enjoying this, this Swedish lifestyle? You know, like, uh, it's actually been really good for me because it's, uh, so much slower paced than, uh, uh, San Francisco. Um, yeah. and then the weather is pretty crappy, which is <laughs> actually advantageous because I can focus <laughs> if it's sunny outside, like I do not want to be indoors at all. So right. I actually like take advantage of these long winters, um, and, uh, really can kind of think and focus on, on my creative practice. So I, I really appreciate it. I think some of the things that I've learned by living in both Switzerland and Sweden the last five years is this focus on life and on balance and, you know, that not everything needs to be about accomplishments and accolades, which to me feels like this constant survival mode um, yeah. that uh, taking time to do nothing is good and it's okay. Uh -huh. and so mm -hmm. I, I very much appreciate that kind of guilt-free approach to just living Oh, good. No, I saw, yeah, I'm from Corsica. Us Corsicans are the laziest French <laughs> ever, but that's because we figured it out that, you know, you need to run all the time. You can just sit back and enjoy. Exactly. Exactly. I do need to mention something and I forgot to bring it up that you are an author as well. Tell us more mm -hmm. about that. <laughs> Yeah, I had this uh, great opportunity when I was working at Frog. One of my creative directors, Catherine Sun, was uh, generous enough to introduce me to the publisher who had reached out to her asking her if she knew someone who could help out on this project of interviewing over 100 industrial design creative leaders um, on what it takes to break into the industry, what they're looking for in the portfolios and, and, uh, how they see the, the uh, industry evolving and how they made it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so she, she felt that I would be great for it. So she made the connection and I said, sure, why not? Um, at the time, like, yeah, why not have a full-time job and also write a book? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so it took me a, a couple of years, I want to say from beginning to end to, you know, find a hundred people, find their contact info, contact them, arrange the interviews, do the interviews, transcribe the interviews, get their approval. Um, uh, but it was, it was a very, um, worthwhile, uh, investment of my time. Um, and I've learned a lot myself. I feel like it came at like a perfect, uh, time in my uh, professional career. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. I do have a copy of the book. I shouldn't have it signed by the way, but, um, the question, I mean, I, obviously the one thread I saw overall was that, you know, it was pretty ruthless. Uh, it's a pretty ruthless, uh, world out there to be in the design world. Mm -hmm. As far as their personality, did you notice any like um common trait of how they spoke to you how to communicate it with you for sure um and especially from the ones um that that are kind of more uh 
publicly known and and have like a high esteem and and regard. And and that's that they all had kind of like this calm confidence about them. There was no deep theoretical drivel. There was no waxing poetic, no grandiosity. It was just this like very humble and simple understanding that hard work, passion, and a bit of luck go a long way. And they had this thirst and curiosity or maybe drive to to keep learning and growing and exploring. They they never felt like they were complete themselves. There was always mm-hmm. something more to to explore and and look into. Uh, and that seemed to cut across the best of them in the in the interview in the interviews. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and they also had this kind of genuine desire to give back, to make things easier for younger generations. I think a lot of them responded back to me because they were excited uh, to share what they have learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very generous with their advice. So I, I really hope that whoever read the book got some of that confidence and encouragement transferred um, from them onto their own journey. Okay. Uh among those uh, hours and hours of interviews, is there a detail that struck you among all of them or no? Like a nugget that said, oh, wow, I didn't know that or, oh, that's odd. <laughs> um, I think at the time that I was doing the interviews, there was like uh, this transition um, uh, or almost like overtaking of of the design field by the digital realm. Um, and, and I think that was the time that the UX UI was also co-opting the word product, product design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so all of a sudden now product didn't mean physical product, but also digital product. And, you know, we get a little territorial. Um, yes. So, so I think what was nice to hear from them, because in, if you were reading media at the time or, following any trends, it was almost as if like physical product design, it's the end, like that's, it's over. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to hear from them this um, confidence that uh, the the tactility of physical product design is something very important to us as humans and that it's not, that it might evolve, but it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, even with the rise of uh, technology. And so far, it seems to be still the case. Hmm. That's a very interesting point. Hmm. Very nice. Okay, so we, you know, we're moving up around the present time. Uh, you know, obviously, twenty twenty, the lockdown. Uh, personally, I felt it was, you know, I discovered things as far as uh, you know. The, I don't really have to chase the. Uh, and do the rat race to the top all the time. You can just sit back, enjoy life, and you'll be all right. Uh, how did you live your lockdown? You were in Sweden, right? Yes, I was in Sweden. Um, I did a I did a lot of cooking and a lot of drawing. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was my that was my time, and I really kind of yeah got more serious about my own creative practice and about uh, yeah trying to to grow that. What do you mean by that? Like your own studio, your own brand? Yeah, I think so. I've been toying um, with starting my own practice for a long time now. So yep. that might be on the horizon. You know, I, nice. I just have a strong desire to have it be as authentic to me as possible. So I'm mm-hmm. still chewing on it and clarifying what that actually means. I feel like that's a natural first step. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, I've been applying to these uh, design residencies. I have one coming up in Spain this spring that I'm excited about and, and hoping to merge my passion for food with my skills as a designer and see what comes out of it. Um, I, I feel like I'm just, I'm now in this headspace where I'm convinced that, you know, if I just keep doing more of what I love, I will get closer to, to living the life that I want. Um, not to say that it's been a bad ride up until this point, but I think there's a lot of me that I've been holding back from showing or exposing. And I, I feel like it might be the time to, to let loose and, and let live. Let's see if I muster the courage to do it. Oh, residency in Spain. So when do you start? Um, it's in mid-March and it's it's only 10 days, but then I have more or less the remainder of the year to execute on whatever comes out of that. Oh, that's exciting. Good mm-hmm. for you. Thanks. All right. So now we're, you know, going to circle back a little bit to the beginning. Uh, if you had, uh, hopefully you've had the opportunity to go back to uh, Bosnia. Yeah, of course. My parents live there. Um, they, they went back some, I want to say 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm there pretty regularly. How did it feel to you to be back? I mean, I went back the first time in 99. Um, so that was four years after, after ceasefire. And it was rough. Um, yep. It was it was very um, uh, bombed out. Um, we had squatters in our apartment, so I couldn't even really go home. I was staying with my uh, relatives, um, and I think it was then when the the gravity of what had happened and what people had survived uh, really like hit home. And it was it was tough to process. It was it was mm-hmm. a lot. Um, sure. I mean, when you see like shrapnel. Uh, marks and bomb marks across the buildings and you see what it does to a brick, you can yeah. only imagine what it does to a human being. Um, yeah. So, so that's been tough. And of course, everyone that has survived through it has, a, has a story and those stories were, were another layer that needed processing and friends who were wounded and family that was wounded and folks that didn't make it. So um, I know I know people like to believe that w- when war is over that it's over, but uh, not for the survivors. It just yeah. it's just always there, um, unfortunately. So like like one of the millions of reasons why we should avoid that scenario at all costs, but we seem to keep circling back to to that as if it's a sane option Um, yeah unfortunately we don't seem to learn a lot about that i mean in my village there are some uh, ukrainian refugees and uh, oh it's this feel for them do you have any sense i meant to ask you that do you have any sense of what's the best way to help refugees actually i mean it's tough it's tough to generalize because every you know everyone's needs are different of course starting with asking them is always a a good idea but i think overall just being like kind and understanding and and uh making them feel seen and validating their feelings validating their stress and making room for their stories and really listening to them without the need to fix anything really goes a long way. As I mentioned earlier, I was really lucky with um, very nice neighbors in in Dalmatia um, who really 
took their time um, for me, especially uh, one of them like had helped me, had me help her with uh, some like um, uh, side business things that she was doing. And, uh, and like, she would like um, teach me how, uh, uh, some creative skills and she would buy me books and really made me feel like I was part of her family, uh, which really, to me, helped me forget about the fact that I was so far away from mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, yeah, little things like that go, go a long way. Um, yeah, yeah, they do. Um, yeah, I, I didn't tell you that we, um, on Monday, uh, I'm making, uh, an extra stop on my, uh, commute to drop off the kids at school. We're picking up two boys from Ukraine and we're driving them to school. Oh, they that's go, awesome. They go to the same school as my daughter. So it's an extra minute out of my day. My God, it's uh, literally on the way. So mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do anything for me. It's one minute out of my day. It saves them an, an hour bus ride each way. So I pick them up in the morning and my wife picks them up in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And those are the little things that I think we can all do. And that uh, hopefully will, I mean, my uh, my uh, wife already did the r- school run, and uh, the boys were just like ecstatic. So, and again, it doesn't do. I mean, it doesn't impact our day at all because it's on the way, and I know it means the world to them. So, I think I don't know. Little things, I I do believe little things uh, go a long way, and uh, hopefully, it'll make their life better. And you know, if we can all pitch in a little bit, we can make everybody's life better. So. Definitely. I have no doubts. And that's very kind of, of you and your wife to do. And um, I wouldn't minimize uh, it in any way. I, I, I can guarantee you it makes a big, big difference. And they'll, it's something they will remember. I mean, I, I mean, an hour bus ride in the morning ugh, in Birmingham. Ugh, my God. <laughs> now I feel for them. And again, it doesn't do much, but I think, yeah, it'd be nice. And I'm sure you, there are plenty of ways we can all help out. And uh, and uh, by all means, go ahead and do it. Anywho, uh, I mean, I want to say thank you for coming to this podcast. It's uh, it's been great. It's been uh, you know, it's a tough story at times. That uh, I'm glad you're sharing your story. I, I believe, obviously, it's uh, sadly still in the news. But I believe it's important for people to know what uh, I think the real toll of us of this is. I mean, as I said, it's been 30 years, but. I'm sure when you see uh, what's going on in uh, Kiev these days, I'm sure it it brings you back all the way back. I mean, my God. Yeah, so. and I mean, thank thank you for for inviting me and for for letting me share my story. It's not that I speak about it too too often, so I really appreciate um, this time. And I mean, all I can say is that um, you know, there's it's all in the end for me, like relative, like I really don't know what it's like to have uh, a a normal childhood. And I don't really know how many people have one, (laughs) but um, you know, I feel like I'm landing in this space of, of radical acceptance that, you know, nothing is perfect and that's okay. And we may not reach all of our goals and that's okay. And, you know, then maybe life will unfold differently than what we have maybe imagined and that's okay too you know at the end of the day i find myself grateful just for the simple fact of being able to experience 
consciousness. You know, I feel like that yeah. in and of itself is not only miraculous, but enough. And anything on top of that is just icing. I mean, if we think about where you started and where your childhood took you and where you are today, it's a quite remarkable, remarkable story. I wouldn't minimize it. It's, um, thank you. you. You did really well. And hopefully it's inspiring for other people who might be displaced by the war or other aspiring artists who are listening. I don't know. And I think it's uh, an important story to be told. So thank you for telling it to us. Thank you again for this opportunity. Yeah, actually. So if people want to see your art online, where can they find you? Um, sure. I'm mostly posting on Instagram these days, and it's just my first and last name at Amina Horozic, and that's A-M-I-N-A-H-O-R-O-Z as in zebra, I-C as in cat. As in cat. Very nice. <laughs> well, thank you once again, thank you, Amina Horozic, for coming to the podcast. And my name is Pierre and I'm your host. Come and join us at the Heart of England Toastmasters the first and third Tuesday of the month. For all the details, please go online at heartspeakers.org.uk. And until the next time, bye-bye.